Amen. Please be seated. If you have a Bible, you can open to Matthew's Gospel. We'll look at chapter 28, verses 16 through 20. Pretty familiar passage for the church. Um, Matthew 28, 16 through 20. The text is also printed in the next page of the bulletin for you. We are um, just past the middle now of a series uh, that's been... um, uh, going on since the beginning of this year, we'll just go a couple more weeks, but uh, it's a series about uh, kind of things we think are most important in, uh, in the church, our core values or our shaping values, the things that uh, we hope um, in a lot of ways would characterize uh, the whole church, but that we hope specifically would characterize our church, our congregation here, Ascension Presbyterian. So uh, we've been talking about the fact that we are... Um, uh, by God's grace, able to know who God really is and able to uh, confess and, uh, and profess faith in the one true triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because we know Jesus Christ and Christ has revealed this God to us. And so we, uh, we've been um, talking about the, fa- the fact that we, by his grace, can have a relationship with him. We're called into a, a fellowship, a communion, a community of people that are centered on Jesus Christ just to be together with God and with each other and been talking about what this life looks like and how, uh, how love really should be the, uh, the big thing going on here. Our, um, uh, our God loved us and so we love him and we love each other and we love uh, the world and that's uh, all a response to the gospel. And, uh, and then last, uh, last time, two weeks ago, we talked about kind of more specifically what that life together looks like it means repentance, it means faith, it means putting your faith in Christ in such a way that it wins you away from your idols, it wins you away from uh, your own path through life and, and living more for God's sake than your own, right, uh, with his, his um, uh, reality driving your life. And, and so that turn, that shift, that repentance away from our own way to God's way that's something that should characterize all of us as Christians and us as the church. So today, <clears throat> um, we're, we're looking at um, kind of one of the main features of the church that makes us a particular kind of a people group. Um, we're talking about the Great Commission, right? The Great Commission is something that we do that's a particularly Christian thing to do. Um, we've been sent out on a mission. Jesus has sent us out. We have a commission. We have a mission. The gospel is not just for us. It's for the whole world. That's always been God's intention. And he's called us into the participation of that ministry and sharing the gospel with taking it to the corners of the earth, right? We're not just a group for our own sake, but we're a group for the sake of the world. Somebody has said, uh, lots of people have said that the church is maybe the only institution that exists for the sake of its non-members. Um, uh, that, um, and that's, that's, there's something true about that, right? Our identity as God's people in the world, as a church, that's what God, God's people were the church, our identity as God's people is tied very closely to our mission in this world. It's not just some extraneous thing. It's not just a tack on to all the other Christian things that we do. Our identity really is wrapped up uh, and tied closely to our mission in the world. This is at the root of who we are as the church. This should be a very defining feature for us. The Great Commission that we have in front of us that we'll read in just a second, um, it's important for the whole church, it's important for every church, it's important for us, it's important for each Christian here, right? Everybody here. So Emil Bruner said, and this is a, there are some quotes printed at the uh, front of the 
front cover of the bulletin for you, and this is one of them. He said that the church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. The church exists by mission just as a fire exists by burning. Right? So if we are not, as a church or as Christians, if we're not combustible, um, if the fire doesn't spread, then I think we're probably missing something critical about what it means to be the church. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to, uh, let me pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, there's, uh, as usual, a lot to overcome in our natural inclinations about what it means to be with you and to be your people and um, the things that would be maybe more instinctively comfortable for us. This is one of those passages that, um, that goes right after our comfort, and yet it's one of the passages that uh, your people have often looked to as one of the most glorious things about us and um, in the, the Great Commission that Jesus would give us his own mission in the world. And so we want to see it for what it is. We want to be changed by your spirit to be able to receive it as we, uh, as we hear about it. Um, would your word and your spirit change us and make us more like Christ and make us uh, a happier people with your mission in our lives and in the world? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So this whole chapter, Matthew 28, it's the last chapter in Matthew's gospel. Uh, It's uh, a pretty big deal. There's some big crazy stuff happening. You've got the resurrection at the beginning of the chapter, right? Jesus has lived, he has died, and now God has raised him from the dead. Um, It's a pretty big deal. Right, uh, maybe the most significant thing that's ever happened in the history of the universe. So, um, the resurrection, the empty tomb, the disciples go there. They see an angel. The angel is talking to them, and then they see the risen Lord Himself, and He tells them, "Go and meet Me here." And it's you've got the Great Commission. All of this in Matthew 28. It's a pretty big deal. Um, and earlier in the chapter, when the disciples are at the tomb, they hear the angel, and He says, "Go quickly." tell all his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So that's the, that's the order that he's given. That's the directive, right? When it says in our text that he directed them to go to this certain mountain and meet them there, meet him there in, in Galilee. That's what, uh, that's what it's a re- reference to. So his presence, a couple times in this chapter, his presence compels the disciples to worship him. They fall and take hold of his feet and worship him. Right? 
he ordered them to go to this mountain in Galilee, and it's in, the, it's in northern Israel, right? It's kind of right along the border of Israel, where beyond that, over those mountains, you've got the Gentiles. You've got the rest of the world, the nations, right? And when they saw him there, again, they worshipped him, right? But, um, but there was some hesitation this time. It says they, but some of them doubted, right? Uh, which, kind of a side note, it's normal for Christians to struggle with doubts, even when they're looking at the risen Lord Jesus in the flesh. It's normal for Christians to struggle with doubts. So don't, don't worry if you're a Christian and you struggle with some doubts about who God is and what life with him is like and whether you're, you can do that or you want to do that or uh, what it means to be a Christian. These things, we all struggle with these things, and that, uh, we should just keep that in mind. So it's normal for Christians to struggle with doubts. But, that's, uh, but there was some hesitation here, right? Some doubt. And so they saw where he had brought them. That's, that's the different thing here between the earlier passage where they just fell at, his, fell at his feet and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And now they're, now they're out here on the, the frontier land, right? The border. They saw where he had brought them, and it was starting to become clear to them, more clear, increasingly clear what Jesus had in mind. Right, so they'd been brought out, out of the heart of their motherland, where all the big stuff happened, like the Jerusalem area. Right? They'd been brought out of there, away from Jerusalem, the city of God's people, the refuge of God's people, <clears throat> and they'd been poised on the brink of the nations. And it says, uh, it, Matthew, Matthew calls Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, or Galilee of the nations, a couple times. There's... Uh, there's one time Jesus is talking about it in Matthew 4, and he says that the people dwelling in darkness, that's the people out there, right, beyond the borders. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, it's because he's talking about Galilee of the Gentiles. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Right? So in a sense, Jesus standing there on the mountain with his disciples is the, the light beginning to creep over the mountain. The dawn is coming toward the nations, right? Uh, from the beginning, the very beginning of God's dealings with his people in the world, with his chosen people, the people that he's chosen out of all the nations to be his special people, he's been very clear about one thing, is that his people have been chosen in order to bless the rest of the world. Right? Uh, from among the nations, they would be chosen to bless the nations. And they've always had a divine mission statement since Abraham. Right? Since Genesis 12, when God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, as I'm taking you, one little family out of the nations, I'm going to make you a nation, and in you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So we've got a whole Old Testament telling us that Israel resisted this commission. Right? You got a whole two-thirds of our Bible resisting Israel resisting this role for hundreds and hundreds of years. And God made it very clear that He would fulfill this mission that He had given to His people. He would fulfill it through his chosen servant, who would be the true representative of his people. 
Whereas people had always kind of messed things up, his chosen servant would do it right. And he would fulfill this calling to be the one chosen in order to bless all the nations. You've got that in Isaiah, in Isaiah's prophecy. A lot of talk about the, the servant of God. And it's, um, Jerry says I should start paying you every time I quote from Lord of the Rings. Uh, maybe I'm just going to work that in. That should be our eighth sermon on the things that are most important to us. Is like the Lord of the Rings quotes or whatever. Uh, it's pretty standard around here. So, sorry. Uh, <clears throat> Gandalf, right? Gandalf the Grey. He's the, he's the wizard uh, that everybody looks to for leadership, and he's got great wisdom and, and, and uh, some power. And he's Gandalf the Grey. And if you've seen the movie or read the book, whatever, he, um, uh, he in, in, in protecting his little group, his little fellowship of the ring, and in leading them and protecting them, he gives his life for them, right? He uh, falls and dies so that they can live and continue on. And, uh, and so he rescues them, and his, his death isn't the end of the story for him. He returns glorious. And his friends, when they see him, they mistake him for someone else. They mistake him for the, the white wizard Saruman, who, you know, is the bad guy, right? They're afraid of him because here's this blinding white uh, wizard, and we think it's Saruman. We mistake him for this other one. And he actually, he doesn't reject that correlation, right? Here's the bad guy, the evil wizard, and I don't reject the correlation or the connection that you've made between him and me. He says, he affirms that correlation, he says, I am Saruman, or rather, Saruman as he should have been. Right? And that's the story of the gospel, is Jesus Christ says, I am a human, or rather, humanity as it should have been. I am Adam. I am Moses. I am David. I am Israel. Rather, Israel as they should have been. And, uh, and, and that's Jesus. And he says in, uh, of himself, and he's in Matthew 12, Jesus is talking and he's quoting from Isaiah again, uh, Isaiah 42 this time, and he says, uh, he's, he's quoting God, who says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. So he's very gentle, right? Even a bruised reed is just prime for breaking. He's not going to break it. He's going to take care of it. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. All the nations, not just Israel. He's going to be the true Israel. He's going, to do, he's going to be Israel as Israel always should have been. And the result of it is that the Gentiles will hope in him. He's going to bless the whole world. So Jesus Christ, he is the true Israel. He's the true people of God. But he's not just Israel's Savior. He's the Savior of the whole world. His life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his glorious return is all good news. And not just for one little people group. Good news for every human being who puts his faith in Christ. Right? Puts her faith in Christ. His new humanity is the redemption 
that we all need from God, a gracious redemption. His humanity is redemption of all who trust in him. And the vast majority, the vast majority of people who are saved by his grace would be people who would be over that mountain from where the, the disciples were with him right now. They'd be the Gentiles. His original disciples then, uh, the 11 who were with him, beginning to understand this, they, they balked at that. It says, when, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Right? And so, um, just another side note. <clears throat> when it says they worshipped him, that's a pretty big deal. Right? Uh, they, they treated Jesus not merely as a human, not even as a glorified human. But, but as God himself. They treated him as God himself, and they worshipped him, and he received that. So anybody who thinks they know the, the New Testament, who thinks they know the Gospels, and thinks they know Jesus, what Jesus claimed for himself, if they say, no, Jesus wasn't divine, and he didn't claim divinity for himself, um, they just, they're just dead wrong. They don't know the Gospels. It, he, he got killed because he claimed divinity for himself because he received worship himself from others, which is something no human being would do, no, no good human being would do. Um, he did it because he's God. He is divine. And so they worshiped him, but some doubted. They were hesitant. Maybe they were reluctant, seeing they weren't going to be allowed to just keep Jesus for themselves, have this nice, comfortable relationship that they've enjoyed with him uh, generally for the last couple of years, but that the king of heaven and earth, that's what he is, the king of heaven and earth would send them throughout his realm, which expands beyond the borders of Israel, to every corner of his dominion to proclaim him to the outsiders. His command would be uncomfortable. They were anticipating this. We all feel that way when we hear his command, when we hear the commission. Go out for my name's sake. It's uncomfortable, right? Um, it would draw them outside of themselves. And they resisted doing this for quite a while still. Right? It would be the killing of the self-centered self for them in favor of the other orientation of the Holy Spirit who compels them to go out and share the gospel with others. So we might wish that his commands would just, they'd just be for our own good. They'd kind of keep us separate from those, those bad people over there, the sinners, right? Um, but his commands send us right into the mess of the world. That's what his commands do. They send us into the mess. We do not think it is safe to obey Jesus. Uh, the scriptures they make this commission and the fulfilling of it. It's a matter of worship versus doubt. It's a matter of worship versus doubt. If you worship Christ, you will praise him among the nations. If you doubt, you'll get hung up and you'll find what you imagine are good reasons to not move out. If you're not moving out, it says something about your faith and your worship. It says something about your connection to Jesus if you're not moving out. If you're not impressed with Christ 
enough to move out. Um, Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, in your hearts, that's where the battle is. This is what this is about. It's our hearts. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So it's a matter of being taken with Jesus. That's what it is. It's a matter of being taken with him, honoring him as, honoring Christ the Lord as holy, as Peter says, of being Christ-centered in your heart. And this is what will make you ready to testify to the gospel, to move out in the mission that's been given to you clearly. Um, Because that's always been the point of being part of God's people, is to be on this mission, to have such a relationship with God that would compel you to to proclaim his name among the nations. So 1 Peter, again, uh, chapter 2 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And the full implication of it is, since you're God's people, since you've received mercy, you extend that, that gracious invitation and that offer to everybody else to proclaim his excellencies among all the nations. So there's a sense in which the disciples and, and we with them are, are most compelled to evangelism, primarily, essentially, fundamentally compelled to do evangelism, which is what this passage is about, by a vision of Jesus Christ, by being captivated by his glory and his goodness, even more by this vision than by what we usually call a heart for the lost. Um, I want to make sure you're not hearing me pit those things against each other, as if, you know, you should not operate out of a heart for the lost in your evangelism. You should operate out of a vision of Christ and his glory in your evangelism. Those things are not opposed to each other, but the, the central thing. The central thing is a vision of Christ. And once your vision is filled with Christ, and you actually get to know him, you see his heart for the lost, and it becomes your heart for the lost. Right? That becomes beautiful. It becomes part of your life. His life becomes part of your life. Right? So it's having Jesus in front of you, though, as the, the chief thing, uh, then um, uh, that's, what, that's what the main thing is that we're responding to with our evangelism. That's, that's our main motivation, Jesus Christ, right? So Jesus said in, uh, in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then in verse 20, he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, so his authority... His authority is the foundation for our mission, for our commission. His authority, the God-man, that's who he is, fully God, fully man, one person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, he's the cosmic Lord. And his authority, which is given to him by his Father, is the reason for our mission. And he sends us. He sends us. He's not asking us to find it in our hearts. The one with all authority in heaven and on earth sends us. He gives the order. So, in a sense, it's not something that, um, that 
we should feel we need to work ourselves into, work ourselves up to, right? Find a bunch of convincing reasons to be internally motivated. If we lack those reasons, do we have an excuse not to, not to do what he's commanding us? Nope. Um, if there's any authority in the universe, Jesus has it, and we have his command. It's his commission. And not only should that be enough reason, it should be enough reason, but it actually should give us courage. It actually should give us joy. That this is the will of the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. This is the will of the cosmic Lord, right? So like, a, here's an analogy, like a presidential courier would be uh, proud to do his work and he'd go forward and, you know, in boldness and confidence and with purpose uh, as he delivers his messages on behalf of uh, his, his president. Um, that's what should characterize us as we realize we're going forward at his command on behalf of the Great One, right, the Cosmic Lord. The fear of men, the fear of men is the alternative, and it's probably the biggest obstacle to our gospel proclamation. What is this person going to think of me when I open my mouth and talk about Jesus? That's so instinctive for us, we don't even realize that that's really what's prohibiting us from opening our mouths and talking about Jesus most of the time. Right? Uh, the fear of men, it's the biggest obstacle. But here's the good news of even, even what Jesus is saying in the fact that all authority has been given to him is that we might be fighting against the current of the whole faithless world we might be fighting against all the schemes of the devil and even against our own sinful flesh, but we are not fighting against the one who stands over it all. Jesus Christ stands over all of it, and we're not fighting against him when we obey his commission. Right? Uh, we might encounter great opposition as we proclaim the gospel, but the Lord of heaven and earth he supports us. He supports us in this mission. It was his idea. And he wants us to do it. In fact, uh, ultimately, <clears throat> when you look at our enemies out there that we might tend to be afraid of when it comes to the thought of uh, proclaiming the gospel, um, ultimately the world and the flesh and the devil, they don't just oppose us. You might feel that way, that they're just against us. Ultimately, they're opposing him, the Lord of heaven and earth. Right? The Bible's absolutely clear about who's going to win that victory, right? That battle belongs to him. <clears throat> so, this Lord, the one who identifies himself as the great cosmic Lord, he promises always to be with us. That's how he closes this, um, his encouragement to us, really, as we uh, are sent out on his mission. He closes with this emphatic language. In the original, it, it really is emphatic, um, and it's, uh, it's meant to remind us that at the beginning of the gospel, his name is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And at the end of the gospel, when it feels like he's leaving, he's departing, and now we're here on our own to face these great obstacles without him, he assures us, no, I'm still with you. I'm always going to be with you, even to the end of the age. So he's with us to the very end of the age, and that language is language that shows up a couple times in Matthew 
earlier, it's language about the time of the great harvest, the, the time of the great sifting and the separating. Um, it says in Matthew 13 that the harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. There's a lot going on in that passage. We're not going to talk about it all, but... But one takeaway is this, when Jesus refers to that, the end of the age, I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age, you don't need to be afraid of non-believers. You don't need to be afraid of other people. You're actually free not to be antagonistic, but to actually love them. You're free to love them in a way that they might reject and they might reject you, and they might hurt you in the process, right? But, uh, but you are free from the fear of them actually to love them with the gospel, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. So he says, he's giving us this encouragement in order that we would do this. In verse 19 and 20, go therefore, considering that I'm the Lord of heaven and earth, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So take, take that sentence there and, uh, and just parse it out really simply. The command to make disciples is the main thing going on there. That's the main thing. That's actually the verb in that. Um, uh, that's the imperative verb in this passage. It's the main command, and it's modified by these participles. Maybe that doesn't make any sense to you, but, um, but we might think that baptizing and teaching are, um, are verbs alongside of making disciples, but they're not. They're actually serving this concept of making disciples. You make disciples by baptizing them and teaching them. That's what he's saying, very simply. You go and make disciples by baptizing them, and he gives the baptismal formula, and teaching them everything that I've taught you, right? So, <clears throat> so making disciples and doing evangelism, which should be maybe obvious at this point, um, that's what we've been talking about, that's the same thing. Discipleship and evangelism is essentially the same thing. We are making disciples of Jesus Christ, and we are disciples who are doing that. We're not masters. We're not teaching people to follow us. Being a disciple, being a learner is basically what that means, being a student. We're teaching, we are students teaching other students, and they need to study Jesus. They need to learn from him. They need to follow him. We're not calling them to follow us. We're calling them to follow Jesus. Just get that clear in your minds. We're called to make other people into his disciples, right, and, and not ours. So being Christ-centered, if, if we are disciples... We are Christ-centered, and that means being a disciple who makes other disciples. That's just what it means. It's pretty basic. It's pretty fundamental. So growing as a Christian, growing as just a Christ follower, 
It means growing in doing loving evangelism of other people. That's what that means. So this here, as he talks about baptism, this is why evangelism and making other disciples is at the root of our identity. This is not just some tack on, some activity among all the activities that Christians are supposed to do. This is really at the root of who we are as the church. This church, you as an individual Christian, it really is at the root of your identity, this, this, uh, this mission as a fire exists by burning. It's probably the most significant passage in the Bible about baptism. Right? And baptism, being baptized, is definitive of the people of God. It's constitutive. Of the, it, it's what constitutes the people of God. We're the ones who have been baptized. We are disciples because we've been baptized. Right? And I, I wish we had the, the baptismal font up here on a regular basis. We maybe try to find a little tiny table or something to keep it up there in front just for a reminder for all of us. We need to remember our baptism. We need to think we've been brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and that, that has come through our baptism, right? <clears throat> and so baptism, this is one of the quotes at the beginning of the bulletin for you. The <clears throat> Ed Clowney says, Christian baptism... Among, among other things, Christian baptism is a naming ceremony. Christian baptism is a naming ceremony. The baptized is given a name, the name of the triune God. Baptism gives Christians their family name, the name they bear as those called the children of God. This is very important throughout all the scriptures. In, in the, the ancient Hebrew culture, names were something more than just a superficial kind of external indicator or signifier, I mean, like, uh, it wasn't just a superficial thing. Names were um, meant to identify you. They, they reveal something about you, right? They reveal you, who you are. They communicate your identity. It's not just a label. It's something about you that a name is indicative of or a sign of. And so the, the triune name of God the fact that God, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that's who God is, the one God in three persons, the triune name of God reveals that God is love. Each person of the Trinity is centered on the others, not on himself. He's not a, he's not a member of the Trinity for his own sake. He's not just there to enjoy all the benefits of being a member of the Trinity for himself. Each person of the Trinity centers upon the other, and this is the name that's been placed on us as we've been baptized into, literally the language is, baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, so this definitive act of our, our baptism declares that we're a people, as defined by our baptism, we're a people who have been uh, introduced into the triune name, into God's own family. His family name is put on us. That's what identifies us now. And that means we're, we're a people who live not for ourselves, but we're other-centered. We don't view the gospel of Jesus Christ as being just for me, just for us. We view the gospel as being for my neighbors and for my community and for our whole world. 
That's what Christians are, is people who do that. What do the children of God do? What did the only Son of God do? He was sent by his Father, and he sends us in the same way. Um, Jesus said in John 20, it's uh, in some ways John's parallel to our passage. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and in Acts chapter 1, he says, as he's ascending into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So belonging to Jesus and being, uh, being baptized with his Spirit and being baptized into the people of God and bearing the, the family name, bearing the name of the triune God, it means that we're baptized into the family business as well. And that means uh, that we have an outward focus. We're not just here for ourselves. We can't just be here for ourselves. We're proclaiming the gospel with all of our lives for the sake of other people. So to be with God, to be with God in Christ, means to be for other people. To love them with the truth of the gospel, the best way to love them is to introduce them to God. Introduce them to the triune God in Christ Jesus. So, some of the underpinnings for why we think doing evangelism or making disciples uh, is actually just part of who we are. Right? It's very closely related to the identity of the church as people who've been baptized into the triune name. So, here's some applications for us. You need to be a disciple. That seems fairly obvious. If Christianity and the church is disciples making other disciples, well, you need to start with being a disciple. You need to be a learner, continually learning from Christ yourself, or else you've got nothing to talk about with people, right? That's, you don't know what it is that you're doing when you make disciples of other people if, if you're not yourself following after Christ, right? So, um, so when he says, teach them to do everything that I've commanded you, do you know what he's talking about? Do you know his commands? Do you know his salvation? Do you know who he is? What he's like? When his preaching is characterized by repent and believe the gospel, do you know what he's talking about? Because if you want to tell other people to do that, then you should know what he's talking about. You need to be a disciple yourself, and you need to know, again, that you're making other disciples of Christ, not, not your disciples. Right? Um, we're not here to impress them with with our morality. We're not here to impress non-believers with our own knowledge. We're here to impress them with Jesus, Jesus Christ. And that means, uh, in a lot of ways, it means just our honesty and our confession of our sin, you know, making sure everybody understands we're not here to attract attention to ourselves, but to Jesus, because uh, there's a big contrast between me and Jesus, you know. If you think being part of the church means being like me, you're in for a disappointment. That's, that's, not, uh, that's not what it's about. It's about Christ. And so that means, honestly, being able to resonate with people's doubts. When people express doubts, they have questions and they have struggles. But you know what? We probably should share those doubts with them. We should, we should share all the ways in which we also struggle with this whole thing. Because it isn't about us having everything together. It's about Jesus Christ. 
So maybe you're not the, the wisest, smartest, most moral, most evangelistically gifted Christian who ever lived. Not sure who that would be. Maybe you're not that person, but in everything you can point them to Jesus if you know Jesus yourself, right? That's our role in making disciples. A big way that this happens is with our children, right? We've got a, a church full of little kids. Um, we baptize and we teach our kids, right? That's the way that we make disciples is by baptizing them and teaching them. We're teaching them that God's family name is more important than our family name, right? That's the real family name that is, is set on them. By his gracious love, their name is, is um, the name of the triune God, not not just our family name. That's not the big, uh, big deal in our family, or it shouldn't be, right? His family name is more important than our family name. And so um, the fact that we baptize our kids, that's a, big, that's a big deal. That makes us different from a lot of churches in, uh, in town. Um, but we, we do so because we think there's good warrant for it scripturally. But one of the reasons we do this is that it shapes their experience, when we can tell them that uh, they grow up in the church as part of the church because God has set his love on them, he's set his name on them. Look, this water has been poured on you. That water that should be right up there in front of the communion table, <laughs> that water is what identifies all of us who are here as those who have been set apart by God's love for the sake of, of love, for the sake of uh, loving the world. That should be something that we're teaching our kids. We teach about the baptism. You didn't know everything about baptism when you were baptized, neither do your kids, right? Uh, you learn about that continually as you're learning from Jesus himself. So, uh, so teach your kids. We baptize them. We teach them. We teach them to be disciples who are making disciples. We're always going to teach them that. There's not a time when they graduate from basic Christianity where now you're ready. Now you can, now you can go and make other disciples, right? You need to do this right away. Do this right away. Um, Jerem Bars, it's the last quote in the beginning of the bulletin, uh, learning evangelism from Jesus. He's also got a book called The Heart of Evangelism, two great books, you should read those. Um, Jerem Bars says that the rules that are intended, these are our rules that we make up and use in our families, the rules that are intended to make us pure are essentially designed to try to keep us apart from sinful people and to keep our children apart from sinful children or children from sinful homes. We teach our children to be undefiled and separate rather than to show mercy. Then, when they grow up, we wonder why they find evangelism to be so difficult. We need to ask ourselves, in what ways do others see salvation dwelling in my house? In my house, right? Not just within the four walls or whatever of the edifice. In our family. How is salvation something that characterizes us in everything that we do. And the kids need to learn that from the earliest age. And in asking that question, in what way do others see it, means there's probably others in our lives who are going to see it, right? We, we can't do what the Lord commands without having non-Christian friends in our lives, people that we know them, and we know their struggles and their doubts, and they know us, and they know our struggles, and they know our doubts, right? We're actually in each other's lives enough to see each other's lives to where they would actually see your salvation dwelling in your house or see your relationship with God and with his people, right? So who are you praying for? Who are your friends that are non-Christians? Who, who's on your, your list of people that you're praying for regularly? 
that they would come to faith, that you might be able to participate in their, their um, coming to faith in Christ and being, being made a disciple of his. This is something we do together. You're not just on your own in this. Tim Chester has a good book called Total Church. He says, evangelism is not something to be undertaken in isolation. Christian community is a vital part of Christian mission. It means when Christians get together, when we hang out, whether it's at church or people's house for a home group or a mom's group or a men's breakfast or Bible studies or whatever, those are always opportunities for, for people to come and see something of the community that is created by God. Right? It can be introduced to God, not just by you as an individual, but by us together, the way they see us interacting with God together and with each other uh, in line with the gospel. Right? Uh, so public worship is one of the great places for that. What we're doing right now, this is, a, this is public. Right? We want people to be here. We wish everybody in the, in the city were somehow able to crowd into this room. Um, it should be accessible to non-believers, right? We shouldn't view this time as just it's the safe place for us to get together so that maybe we'll be more willing when we leave to go talk to non-Christians. Um, this should be something where there, there are non-Christians here seeing what we do, hearing from Christ, right? witnessing the way that we interact with each other as a, as a response to God's grace and his salvation in our lives. So, Public worship, it's, you know, the context obviously is we're here to praise Jesus. We're here to do that in a way that wins others to praise him too, right? So, so we, um, we make this an accessible place for non-Christians to come. We hope, we hope it would be. This is not something we just need to do locally, right? Uh, it's something that we need to be able to do on a regional or even a global scale, right? As Joe um, prayed for our, our um, missionaries in Taiwan, the, the Jansons. We need to do more of that. We need to send people out. Maybe some of us, you know, it's great God has you where he has you, and he has you here for his reasons, and you're in the jobs that you're in, and you're in the, the families and the communities and the neighborhoods that you're in for great reasons, and maybe some of us are going to be called to leave this place, uh, to, to go and proclaim the gospel somewhere else. Uh, that's being sent out like that is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, to have the, the triune name of God on you in your baptism. Some of you will be sent out there over the mountains right, to, do, uh, to fulfill the Great Commission there. You need to be open to that, right? Especially you kids. Maybe you just need to be open to thinking you're not just always going to live here in this city, in this region for the rest of your life. Maybe you're going to move. Maybe you're going to relocate for the sake of the gospel for the sake of Jesus Christ, to proclaim his name. Um, let me close with a quote from Fred Sanders. He's got a book called The Deep Things of God. It's a book about the Trinity. Um, he says that a gospel which is only about the moment of conversion but does not extend to every moment of life in Christ is too small. A gospel that gets your sins forgiven but offers no power for transformation. It's too small. And I might add, a gospel that introduces you into a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, but doesn't move you to introduce others 
to a, a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that's too small of a gospel. Right? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that uh, you would do what is on your heart, that you would have your way among us, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven where everything goes according to your will. We pray that, um, that you would make us the kind of people who respond to your grace by being outwardly focused. We pray that you would make us the kind of people who don't just reserve for your love and the gospel for ourselves but uh, would let the gospel have its full effect in our lives by compelling us to go and tell others about it. We pray that um, you would fill our minds and our hearts with a vision of Jesus Christ that would be compelling to that end. And we know that um, if we've been reluctant or, um, or dragging our feet about uh, making disciples of other people, we know that the real problem of it is in our hearts with our connection to you through Christ. So we pray that you would strengthen our faith, that you would um, get Jesus in front of us in, uh, in new and compelling ways throughout our lives, here as we're gathered together to learn about Christ, but throughout our week, would you help us to be the kind of people who are so Christ-centered and, um, and so thankful that we would be moved not just to praise you um, in our hearts, not just to praise you in the the quiet of our own homes, or even in the relative safety of uh, public worship, but that you would move us to praise you in all of our relationships, that you would open up our lips so that we would talk about Jesus Christ with our friends who don't yet know you, and all of our family and coworkers and neighbors, that you would make us the kind of people who care about everybody in the world hearing the name of Jesus Christ, because it is a glorious name and it's worthy of all of our attention. So. We pray that you would fix us on Christ for the sake of the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.